0: Hey, this is Stephen St. John, and I want you to listen to my new podcast, Hot Mike with SSJ. You can watch Hot Mike with SSJ on YouTube or download the podcast wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
1: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit detective Gary Jenkins.
0: Welcome, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. Don't forget to hit me up on Venmo or PayPal if you feel like supporting the program. I have a special program today. We have Ron Chepset.
1: Where are you from, Ron? I'm originally from Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada, and I've been living in Rock Hill for the last 30, 30 35, 40 years.
0: That's what I thought. And we have Jesus Rios Haneo. Welcome, Jesus. Thank you very much. Jesus is originally from Columbia. Now, Ron has done a book called The Real Mr. Big. Ron is a pretty prolific true crime author. You need to only check him out on Facebook, a lot of the different Facebook places. I don't know. Do you have an actual Facebook page? Yeah,
1: I have a Facebook page. I have a website, RonChepsick.com, and Facebook would be the best place to check with me.
0: Check my show notes, folks, and, and I'll have links to all this up there. So if you want to buy the book or check out Ron's other work, we had him on on a in depth deep dive into the Colombian American drug connection, the cocaine connection called was it the Drug Lords, I believe, Ron? Yeah, it was
1: Drug Lords. It's called Narcos Now. Okay. The book.
0: And Ron has done a deep dive into this world as and we've all lived it. I was a soldier in the Ronnie Reagan war on cocaine coming out of Columbia at one time in my life. And now we're gonna look at the British connection, which I've heard about, but I always wondered when I was doing drugs, how do they get that stuff from Columbia over to Europe? It's pretty easy to get it up to the United States, but how do they get it over to Europe? And Jesus, I think you're gonna be able to tell us a little bit about that, correct?
2: Yes. My first view to travel to Europe. Was because by early 80s, mid 80s, the DAA was very powerful in Colombia. They will have the power to do anything in this country when it's about drugs. And I was really scared of them for that reason. Never went to America, never think to do anything over there. And on top of that, the main cartels, Medellin and Cali cartels, were already in power of the market there in this drug business. That was the main reason I decided to move to Europe. First I went to Italy, then I moved into Spain, then I went to France. But when I arrived later to UK, I saw there a place for the market. And I started to set the market there.
1: Yeah, he arrived at the uh, right time. The uh, European drug trade was a little bit behind the US in terms of cocaine. And you mentioned the Cali cartel and the Medin Cartel, Jorge Ochoa and Hilberto Rodriguez-Oruella, they were members of the Medellin and, and Cali Cartel, went on a fact-finding mission, so to speak, in 1984 to see about the market. And that's how the trade really started to develop. They saw a big opening for it. And Jesus was ahead of his time too, because he also saw it. And it's just about the time that Jesus went to England, right? nineteen eighty five and he explored the market, did his research like he always did, and decided that there was a great opportunity there for the criminally minded
0: always an opportunity on drugs, you know when the mob in the United States couldn't make money off of illegal alcohol, they went to gambling, and then later on they made drug money off of drugs all along, but later on drugs became the real money maker yeah, that's yeah. you know that and hey you are a typical example a real example of a, an immigrant community bright young guy who goes to a foreign country where he doesn't really speak the language where he doesn't really have any connections no family connections Nothing, and there's a way for you to go and make money and really do something. And that's with starts off in the United States when prohibition with alcohol and with cocaine. That's the deal. That's the way to really get something going. Yeah. So when you first got there, you didn't go there with the idea that you were going to, to go in the cocaine business, did you? Or did you?
2: When I first started, I was looking for any kind of opportunity. But when I went to Italy, I went to Med some contacts from the Sicilian Mafia, and they introduced to me to some of them contacts in London. And that is the way I finally arrived to London for the first time. I was a very young boy. And then I come back to Colombia, and then I explained to my friends over here the opportunity to set up a market in, in the UK. And then I went back to London for goods in on 1985.
0: Right. Now, how did you get introduced into the Sicilian Mafia? Did you have another connection
2: already? No, really. No, really. In UK, I had to start making the connection. I had to start making the contacts. That was not really a problem. That was easy to start uh, making a contact, making connection with people. Because mid-80s in UK, whenever, even, even now, whenever they notice you are a Colombian, they start demanding. And they, they figure you... They figure you have a connection right straight to the right. source
0: just because you're from Colombia.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. Easy to make connection because you're from Colombia, and they start. The demand is there. Everyone is demanding for that. And that you feel, I was feel that, that I'm Colombian. I had to start supplying these people. Yeah. Ah,
1: it's really amazing. I mean, Jesus was in his early 20s, and his friend had the contact in, in Sicily with Sicilian mafia. Jesus volunteered to go, which was quite remarkable traveled all the way from Colombia to Italy to talk to mafia, the Sicilian mafia, the mafia. I mean, the biggest mafia in the world, the most important mafia at that time in the world. And he was able to, like a diplomat, make contacts, and they put him on his way to England. He went to England, made further contacts, and uh, with that knowledge, he went back to Colombia, came up with the idea of using the mail service to move the drugs. It was very small at first, but he was making good money at the time. Yeah. So...
0: When you contact the Mafia and then they connect you with somebody in England, was it another Sicilian in England? And did you have to give them a little piece of the action? Did you have to keep them paid off all the time? Yes. Normally, they pay off all the time, yeah. Okay. And was it another Sicilian when you got to England? Yeah. And so when you got to England, then, you know, I know there's English organized crime. There's some Sicilians. It's not quite like the United States. Did you just go into like some of the drug places, I mean drug places, the the discos where they do a lot of drugs and start asking around and start finding a dealer? I mean, I'm always curious about how people find each other in this world because it's such a secretive world and everybody's suspicious that somebody else is going to be an informant or an undercover cop or something.
2: I was very, very careful to the new people I met. And before I do any deal the end, I never presented myself that, that was me. I always presented just a messenger, and I was in the middle. For that reason, that was an informal thing like that. They were not interested in me, because they weren't interested in the main guy. That was me at the same time. I never presented myself. That was me. And whenever I make somebody new, before check for their background, never seen about them, family and everything, before I started to do any deal with them, just say to them, I need to pass the message, and then after I get the information I need, And after I've done my research, I will say to them, oh, yeah, the big man say, yeah, no problem to start doing business with you.
1: You're always taking a risk when you're a gangster. I mean, you could be careful and all that. So I think he was a little bit lucky, too. But he increased his luck by being really cautious. He did this with everybody. He did this with the the people he hired to run his organization. He would check them out just like an employer. He would check their backgrounds. He would go see where they hung out. He would check them for honesty. It worked. You know, he had a very tight, oiled organization. It ran real well.
0: Over in England, were you able to find cops that would take some money and maybe help you check people out, that kind of thing? A cop would be invaluable to check people out.
2: Mm, yes, it would be people down, yeah.
0: You, you found cops that you could pay off.
2: Yes, there were uh, five cops working on my organization. They were even arrested maybe a year before I was arrested. Yeah.
0: So in the book, it talked about how you kind of started getting bigger as you won a lot of money in a lottery over there. You won 100,000 pounds in a lottery in England. Spot a ball lottery. S- spot a ball, and you were able to invest spot-a-ball. that into cocaine?
2: No, really, because when I won the spot the ball, I already have some money on my pocket. But that is the money the police say I use it to build up my empire. So
0: were the people in Colombia, were they fronting you, as we say? Were they just giving you the cocaine, and then when you would sell it to somebody else, then you'd go back and pay for the cocaine you
2: already had? I'm always interested in the nuts and bolts of how these things work. People in Colombia, when they send a consignment of cocaine, I will always pay in the first. Many times they will send the, we have any payment in advance. I will pay them back after I sold the cocaine.
0: Okay, yep. so if something happened and you lost it, then you had a shipment, got busted by uh, customs or something, then you're just out the money, and then why do you add that?
2: I will have to pay from my own pocket, yeah, that's true. I was really lucky because I lost uh, very few quantities. I never lost any big quantities, hundreds or 300 kilos, things like that, never. Only a couple of times I lose five kilos with somebody, another 20 kilos with, with somebody, with delivery people.
1: One of the things that you mentioned, the Cali and the Medellin cartel, he worked with members of the Norte Valley cartel, which was the uh, third cartel, and it operated in his area. And he was related to some members, he knew other members, and he developed a close working relationship with them, which was remarkable because there was a lot of infighting, a lot of killing, and he managed to keep his contacts going all the way until the end of his organization.
0: So I noticed some of your money you paid off, a lot of it was to uh, for shipping. You had a big shipping expenses to the people that took it on boats. As you got to be bigger and bigger, people that took it on boats, you had people on those boats, you had customs officials, you had all kinds of people to pay off. There had to be a lot of balls, a lot, a lot of details that you had to keep up in the air and going all the time. How was that life? I mean, were you on the phone and your pager and everything 24 hours a day, seven days a week? It had to take a lot of energy. <laughs>
2: Yes. Sometimes when the war comes, we have to keep working 24 hours a day, yes. So was your primary port of entry
0: Spain? I think I read something about coming in Spain. Was that, or did you take it directly to England? How was your route set up? I didn't hear that question properly.
1: Did you ship most of your cocaine through Spain, or did you also use England?
2: Most of the country yes, through other European countries, and then into England. But a lot coming, died into England as well, into the Liverpool POSMO.
1: It was very easy to ship cocaine from Spain because of the European Common Market. There were no borders. It and was so, so easy
2: because there was yeah, no borders.
1: Yeah. And so the boats came. They used small boats to bring the cocaine on shore. You put them in lorries and they moved all the way to England. Of course, that changed now because England dropped out of the EU. So probably a little bit harder today to ship the cocaine. Yeah, I
0: imagine it is. So again, that's a lot of people you've got working for you. How do you keep
2: track of all that? Yes, at some point, I have about 20,000 people working, dealing with, especially with the money. Because when the cocaine arrived, that was so easy to go, to disappear, right? Come and straight away, that goes. In less than 24 hours, one ton of cocaine is gone. But the money, that was the one who was making the problem, especially to send money back to Colombia... And for that reason, we had to create like a gyros company and uh, employ over a lot, a lot of people.
1: The gyros refers to the money transfers, electronic money transfers that were transferred overseas. And he had like 20,000 people in Colombia that would pick up the money. And oh, uh, wow. they would ship in under 500 pounds because that was the legal amount before you had to report paperwork. It works like the United States too in money lot. It's $10,000 here in the United States. You can move money up to ten thousand dollars and if, if it's it. over ten thousand then you got to report it so
0: god that's a lot of people there right? <laughs> and then did you had somebody in columbia that would go around and collect all that money in order to get it back to in the larger amounts to the suppliers because they had you know they had hundred thousand dollars coming at some time
2: i have a couple of one of them was my my younger brother he was the main person to deal with the money in Colombia. And he used to go to different cities and collect the money. And in every city, I have somebody as well, like a manager, who will be in charge of the people who go to the companies to collect the money, and he will pick up all the money from people. He will get all the money together, and then he will hand the money to back to my brother. And then my brother will hand the money to my old boss.
0: Ah, huh, Wow. And that's all cash. That's probably fives, tens, twenties, maybe some fifties, but probably not even that many hundred dollar bills. was. When
1: you think of it, I mean, you talk to drug traffickers, they say selling the drugs is easy. Moving the (laughs) money is the hard part. Getting the money out of the country. Yeah. It's the hard part. It's a headache, nice headache, of course, but yeah. And he had such an incredible organization that it was like a major corporation. It was like GM, General Motors or uh, IBM.
0: That's what I'm thinking. You had to have like an executive vice president or something. You had (laughs) to have division heads. You had to have somebody running the transportation division on both sides. You had to have somebody running the money transportation division. And then underneath that person, you he had thousands of people doing the money. And then somebody else had to be on the collection end over in Columbia. And this had to be in both England and Columbia. That's amazing.
1: You can see the problem too. It's so complicated that eventually something's gonna go wrong. Something's gonna go happen. You know what I mean? And no matter how careful he was, this would eventually happen.
0: Yes. Way too too many people know about yeah. that. Way too yeah. many people, you know, end up getting in trouble and wanna get their way out of it, wanna give a little information. They may not know much, but they know enough to get somebody started on you. I noticed also in the book that MI5, I believe, is that's the internal, like the FBI in uh, England, right? And they were, like in the United States, they were totally disrupted by 9-11. And Jesus, you were like, that was kind of your heyday during 9-11. That gave you a little leeway because same way in the United States after 9-11 all that kind of drug and high-end mafia, those kinds of units all sent people to the Joint Task Force on Terrorism, and I'm sure it's the same way in England. Eventually, they're going to come back. How did you deal with the police? I mean, I'm always curious about that because I've worked the other side of these deals. And so did you even think about the police? I mean, did you look for it, do counter-surveillance? Did you watch for people watching you, have your phone lines tested, look for, listen, look for bugs in your room or your car? No, something happened. Yeah. Yes. Okay, now.
2: I believe for that time when I was doing my deals, my business, I saw that I do like a research in the British intelligence and the police. And I noticed that they were relying too much on technology. For that reason, I wanted to keep away from the technology, use the mobile phone, computers, everything like that. And I started using the old methods, like always I pass the message through person, face to face. Never using any technology. And then uh, thanks to that, when they realized that was me, it's only because I was grass-up. But they never pick up anything from, inter- from the technology in their intelligence. I was watching them anyway when, before I was arrested when they were around me, follow me. But I never expect, I never thought I'm going to be arrested anyway.
1: We have a chapter in there where we talk about how they were following him, how they were bugging him. The thing about law enforcement is they're kind of slow at the beginning. Gangster always gets the head start, but they got, <laughs> they got so much resources and so much money, determination, I mean, you know, to go after criminals that eventually they come up to speed. And when you got 250 police officers working on this case, that's how much they wow. had. That's one of the, Stephen Lear told me that, one of the officers. They had 250 officers at one time. It's a no-brainer, right? Oh, Yeah.
0: I used to wonder sometimes I think we'd be following somebody I think if that guy only knew Yeah. How many resources were on him and how much we knew about him, he would just die. <laughs> he would get out of the business fast. Yeah, and there at the end, I noticed they were all over you. There's some stuff in a book about how, like, they try to engage you in conversations in restaurants, and I started noticing that the same people were showing up at the same places. That's, that's always a problem that you got is uh, you only got so many people that can get close to somebody and exactly. show up twice at the same place. And if guys watching it all, it's like, uh
1: oh, <laughs> there's something wrong here. Well, Jesus was actually got out of the drug trade right, Jesus? You actually got out, but it was too late by then. Ah. You know, it was a little bit too late. If he maybe a year or so earlier, he might've got away with it, right? They were on to him and he made another mistake. He, he revealed his identity to a friend who became an informant against Jesus, but he actually got out of the drug trade. I described that in the book, you know, where we talk about what happened around that.
0: Yeah. So actually from what you've said, Jesus is most of the people didn't even think you were the boss. They didn't know who the boss was, and you didn't really reveal yourself to most of the people, although you had to reveal yourself to who you were and your position to a certain amount of people. So that was smart. You're one of the smarter drug dealers, I think, that was out there. Most guys got a big ego. They want everybody to know they're the big man.
2: Yeah. Yes, it's true. And thanks to that, I managed to, to make very big contacts because they always get, get me as a messenger. I pass the message to myself. Yeah. And then I made very, very good contacts You allowed
1: people
0: to underestimate you, didn't you? Yeah, he was very low-key
1: But, you know, he liked to spend money But he didn't do it in England Like a lot of gangsters They flashed their wealth in their neighborhood, right? In their hood Yeah, yeah He didn't do that He went to Spain He went abroad And he told me once He spent over $100,000 on a weekend You know, on (laughs) on a vacation On that (laughs) So he always took cautious He was a very cautious guy But like I said Eventually, law enforcement catched up with you yeah. Another thing I'm curious about is I noticed there was a
0: little bit in the book about sending money to Switzerland. Now, how did that work? So do you, establish, you always hear about this in the TV or the movies. People establish these numbered accounts in Switzerland and they take hide their money there. How did that work for you to actually do that?
2: Uh, most of the money was sending over by Gyros into the accounts Then people will collect the money. We had to contact the person first, ask for the ID number, name, full name, and the money is going to send it to them. That was one of the ways I used to move the money around. But other ways, I used to send money through the Cayman Islands, Panama, and then into business account in a country in Latin America, sometimes to Brazil or sometimes to Colombia. It's always a lot of different ways to laundry the money. It's no easy. It's hard, but because they leave step, they leave signals for where the money go on. Now, how did you keep your cash
0: money around for bribes and that kind of thing? You had to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash money at hand to pay these bribes. They're not going to take a check. <laughs> They're not going to, they just want cash.
1: One of his stash houses had one time, he told me what, $14 million at one time, Jesus. And yeah. he kept he kept money in his car. He kept like $30,000 in his car, right? Which it was like, it was like petty money for us, you know what I mean? Like just sort of throwaway money. Walking around Walking money. Walking around money, right. That's what I always <laughs>
0: called it. But when the cops catch you with $30,000 in your car, of course, you probably weren't getting stopped. <laughs> we have stopped people with like $10,000, $15,000, 20000 in a car. You know, bingo, drug dealer, <laughs> take the money and then put all your attention on that guy. Yeah. Just took like briefcases full of money and just stacked it up in cardboard boxes or something in a house with $14 million. I had a guy there in Kansas City one time. He said, I was a sergeant. He said, Sergeant, he said, did you ever see a whole room full of money? I said, no, I
1: haven't. He said, well, I have.
0: So (laughs) it like you had like a whole room full of money, just like that guy
1: did. Well, you imagine $14 million in (laughs) the pound notes, right? How much space that would take. (laughs) That's got to be a pain. One of the things interesting about Jesus is that his life would have been in, in danger if he stayed in Colombia. He actually made a very good move. In fact, I have a chapter in there that called the Sicarios, where he talks about the, how he got in trouble with the Sicarios, who are contract killers, very vicious individuals, you know, that their, their living was made through killing people. Yeah. And Jesus got caught up with them. You may want to talk a little bit about that, Jesus. That's, it, that's the interesting part.
2: Yes. Before I, I, mo- I moved to UK, I became in-depth. I lost some money, from in uh, trying to export some cocaine, and I became in debt. And the sicarios were on me because of that. At that time, I didn't have the money to pay back, and they gave me like a negotiator. For many deals, they had to do going around many cities in Colombia, and I was like a negotiator. But they wanted to kill people. The main job for them is to kill the person. And they will get paid. But I was against that because I was a negotiator. I want to reach an, a an deal with the person who owed the, you know, the money and then leave the person, give it some time to the person to pay back. But they were not happy with, the, with my approach to that kind of business. And they wanted to go to see the person and kill the person. I was in charge of the very big group of them. Because of that, they will they decided to murder me. And then when I realized they were attacking me sometimes when I was in a disco and many times around the city, they were getting my car with machine guns, they were fired at my car. And then I realized, and even the big boss told me it's better to you leave the country go away, they will get you. And that okay. is one of the main reasons as well. I had to go away from Colombia.
1: Yeah. One, one of the sicarios that was after him was a guy named Miko. Eventually, he went to jail and he got murdered in uh, prison. It freed up Jesus to come back. He was able to come back because the threat was gone by then. So he was able to come back to Colombia and visit.
0: Did they ever come to England? Or did you have any enforcement people in England?
2: When I was working, yes. I used to have three Colombians and one Italian. How they were my informants, uh, enforcers in case I need their help. And even then, I was arrested. I contacted them and they wanted to be with me at home, ready to repel the police, to fight in the police with the guns and everything. But I don't know. I decided, no, 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 it's too late. Leave it for tomorrow to see what happened. They were arrested and sentenced for drug, for um, gun offenses.
0: Well, there's the book, folks The Real Mr. Big by Ron Chepyset and Jesus Ruiz Haneo, and we've been talking to both those men and getting an inside look at how a Colombian refugee became the United Kingdom's most notorious cocaine kingpin. You remind me a little bit of Kansas City. We had a guy come from Los Angeles in the, early on in the cocaine days, and he worked at a fast food place and saved money, and he bought got enough money to buy like a quarter of like a pound or a little less a pound of cocaine he sold that he bought a whole kilo of cocaine he had connections back in LA he bought a whole kilo of cocaine he sold that made some money he bought another kilo and then pretty soon he was buying four and five kilos at a time he just kind of built it up you kind of remind me of that guy there you are the one billion pound king of cocaine Mr. Big jail for 19 years so to end this off Jesus, now you got 19 years in a British prison. Were you able to work any kind of a deal to get that sentence reduced? Or how did that go down? How much time did you have to spend?
1: If you read the book, he got into more trouble while he was in prison. Oh, okay. He decided that he was getting out and he needed money. And so he hooked up with these British gangsters and tried to work out a deal. Right, Jesus? And, uh, yes, uh it was doomed from the beginning because the British authorities had, had caught on and were bugging his prison cell. They were tracking his men, and he got busted on that. Fortunately for him, it didn't cost him a lot more time, and he was able to get out.
0: Hey, Jesus, you've done all your time, and you didn't testify against anybody?
2: No, I've done all my time,
1: yes. No, he never testified against anybody. Okay. That. All right. Well, you're a stand-up guy.
0: I've, yeah. I've met a few of you guys, and that then turned your life around. After it's quite, it's quite out.
1: remarkable. I mean, a lot of people testified against him, but uh, yeah, but there was like 34 people in the UK, and I think 17 in Colombia that were arrested and busted that were a part of his organization, and it came up to over 300 years wow. in jail. So it shows you how big his operation. And then when he got busted, the price of cocaine shot up 50% from 20,000 pounds a kilo to 30,000 pounds a kilo, which shows you the power that he had within the drug trade. You know what I mean? Really? I'd
0: I'd always noticed that in the drug business. It's like no matter how big the seizure was, the price still stayed the same and actually went down over the years. It just kept going down no matter how much money. Law enforcement poured into that, how many seizures you made is one historic seizure after another the prices kept going down
1: yeah down. I mean, good for pr so you can tell whether there's been any progress is look at the price of the cocaine you know it should right. rise right it should, it, should <laughs> right. If it was really successful it should shoot to the roof but <laughs> you look at the price of cocaine and it's gone down it's gone actually down and supply and demand really i'm sure that somebody stepped in took up the slack after Jesus the scene yeah. They didn't miss a beat it was just like after Escobar left the scene, the Cali Cartel left the scene, Al Chapo left the scene. There's always somebody. As long as you have demand, you're going to have somebody that wants to supply it. Yeah,
0: that's kind of part of the problem. The only way we ever look at this is let's stop the supplier and not doing anything about the demand. And as long as the demand's out there, there's going to be a supplier.
1: Exactly. All right,
0: Ron and Jesus, I really appreciate you guys coming on the show. We enjoyed it. Good yes. luck in your future endeavors, and check my show notes out, folks, for all the books and links to Ron's website and all the books that he's written, and there's a bunch of them. He's prolific in the true crime genre, shall we say, and you still have your radio show. That's the first time I met you, Ron. I was on your show.
1: Exactly. I have a Crime Beat on the artistfirst.com website. It's a radio show. Tonight, in fact, I'm going to have Julie K. Brown, the woman that took down Jeffrey Epstein,
0: Oh, yeah. I saw that on Facebook somewhere. That sounds interesting.
1: This project is still ongoing. Tomorrow we're meeting with, on Zoom, like you, uh, with a British production company that won an Oscar to see about maybe auctioning our book. Oh, that'll be nice. So we're pretty excited. We're pretty excited about that, right, Jesus?
2: Yes, yes. We are very excited. And we hope something's coming on. Yeah,
1: exactly. Guy Richie to to
0: direct it and get Brad Pitt to play Jesus if he could affect a, a uh, Colombian accent. Leonardo DiCaprio. I think Antonio Banderas should play. Him. Antonio Banderas, he would be the best, actually. Yeah, I just love Brad Pitt. He's a Missouri boy. See, I want to be Brad Pitt someday. Yeah. But yeah, Antonio Banderas being playing Jesus. Yeah, and that would be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You'll be hanging out on the set. They'll pay you money just to hang out on the set. Yeah. wet your appetite here, Jesus. Frank Culada, who was a mob guy, told me when Martin Scorsese first approached him, they just gave him $5,000 just to sit and talk to him for about an hour or two. And then, yeah. and then every time they turned turn around, they'd give him another $5,000 just to sit and talk to him.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's great. We'll see what happens. Maybe we'll be back on your show again.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes. really. Talk about the movie. All right, Jesus, thank you. Ron, it's good to talk to you again, and we'll be in touch. All okay, right,
2: thank you. We Thank enjoyed you it. very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Let, me have the, let me in the show. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Well,
0: folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. I just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcasts and other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page and on my Facebook and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of y'all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And I also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And, and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And the group is smaller, and I monitor that pretty closely. So get on that. I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And In general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will be sitting back in their den with a cigar and and a drink and and uh, we just have a really good time on those monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. You can use a credit card or use PayPal, but you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot in the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. If you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. I ask for donations to help do my next documentary and a lot of you guys really responded big time and i've been able to pay people and it's going to have a little higher production values than what i've had before i'm getting really close to completing it it's about kansas city organized crime and politics i have a title finally it's vote fraud here again politics and the mob and don't forget about my previous documentaries gangland wire skimming from las vegas and brothers against brothers the Savela spiro war both of those can be purchased or rented on amazon now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and then I'll leave y'all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, The True Story of How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretaps transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link, and you'll go to that other website, and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps. I think that's kind of unusual. So go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. And if you don't have a Kindle, Amazon has free Kindle software for your tablet or your phone. Now I'm going to let you guys go. But first, I want to say that Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration. Their programs that help veterans out with PTSD. You can get help with their hotline 800-873-8255. And then push one, or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening, and I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey.